Hey everyone, welcome to the Midpoint. My favorite saying is, this too shall pass, because life is a roller coaster. Sometimes you're on a high, and sometimes you're on a low. This too shall pass always reminds me when things are going well, when I'm in a great spot, that I have to stay humble, that I have to keep pushing, because this moment will pass. In a, in a similar way, when I'm down, when I have to endure certain things, when I'm in a, stuck in a bad spot that I don't like to be in, I know this will eventually pass. Our guest today has definitely been on a roller coaster throughout his life as well. Alex Cody Foster, he's an author and a ghostwriter. He's been on the run with the authorities together with John McAfee. Maybe you've seen the Netflix show Running with the Devil, The Wild World of John McAfee. Alex also wrote a book called The Man Who Hacked the World, A Ghostwriter's Descent into Madness with John McAfee. And that madness part we're going to talk about. Um, Alex definitely didn't have it easy throughout his life and mental health has been a recurring um, theme. Now, Living a balanced life is sort of the moderation topic will come up as well because it helps him sort of live a more stable and sustainable life. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I had a blast. Um, before we jump in, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to it. Um, and let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alex. Thanks Glad so much here. for taking your time. Yeah, Absolutely. I was really looking forward to this conversation. I mean, we, we, when we, when we end up talking, we just talk about anything and everything. Um, in German, we say you talk about God and the world, implying sort of, you know, could be literally anything and we completely get off track. So let's see how long it's going to take. And yeah, I introduced you as, as a, as an author, as a ghostwriter. Um, we definitely got to touch uh, about sort of how it is, uh, how, how, you can become a ghostwriter or sort of what, what, that, what that means actually. But sure. um, when I was listening to and reading about you and, and listening to some of your interviews, um, I also saw that you you're, uh, created a masterclass sort of for people that want to become a ghostwriter. One of the things uh, you do aside from being an author and a ghostwriter is also you teach others to, how to become a ghostwriter. And you teach them also to ask your um, sort of the people that you interview sort of the, the celebrities or whoever wants to write a book. Um, whenever you ask a question, you also go, I want, want to dig deeper. So that's what we're going to do today with you as well, a little bit. Um, and I think you teach them to ask the question, what's the most impactful event that happened in your childhood? So I why know. don't we start there, Alex? Ooh, wow. <laughs> what do you remember? Flipping the script on me here. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> the hunter becomes the hunted. I like it. Uh, the most impactful... Um, event of my childhood was probably moving out. It was probably moving out of my, my mother's house at 15 and moving into my girlfriend's college dorm where I worked and where I lived for the next two years. So I was a 15-year-old kid living out of my girlfriend's dorm and everyone thought I was a college student, you know, and I was also, you know, ghostwriting their papers, their homework, their history and literature, like, you know, uh, English papers. For How old were you there? Fifteen. I was fifteen, 15. and yeah, I was I was not a really good kid. You know, I was ghostwriting for like beer, for beer and like pot. I was a pothead <laughs> back then. I'm not anymore, but you know, I was fifteen years old, so I, I was hustling, writing papers so I could smoke joints on this college campus. I don't know if I, this is appropriate <laughs> for your podcast, Edgar. You I might want to edit this out. I don't um, know. Uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll find see. out. I mean, yeah, there no, but, is some yeah, element I mean, of entrepreneurship here, we have to admit. But um, yeah, that's that's what I did. Uh, most impactful element of my childhood because it kind of forced me to become an adult. You so know, let me ask was, that follow-up question then. Yeah, why, why did you move out? 
Yeah, I moved out because my mother has and had uh, debilitating mental health issues. And, you know, she had tried to kill me. That was not a pleasant experience. So at a certain point, I knew I couldn't really stick around and I needed to take care of myself. So I needed to leave. So I did. did How did she try to kill you? Um, She, well, this was actually a couple of years later, but, you know, it happened a few times in other ways in my childhood. Um, And not nothing is as stark as the last time. The last time I was 18, actually, and and she was driving. Sorry, I was 20. I was 20. I get my dates messed up, but she was driving me and my girlfriend at the time back to her house, which is where we we were staying for a while. And uh, she found out that I wasn't going to be paying her mortgage anymore. You know, I was moving, I was moving out with my girlfriend. We were moving into town, getting our own place again. And because my mother looked at me as a paycheck and she wasn't working, she just wanted me to pay her bills. It drove her into some sort of psychosis and she got very angry. Um, Her eyes bugged out of her skull. She was gripping the steering wheel. Her knuckles were white. And she, the speedometer was going up, 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 up because oh, wow. she was speeding. You know, we were going 55, 60, 65, 70, 80, 90. And I said, mom, what are you doing? What are you doing? Mom, what are you doing? And her eyes bugged out she, as if she was in some sort of fugue state, staring at the road. And I could tell, I knew right then and there that she was going to crash us into a tree and kill us all because she's, you know, that's just the way my mother was. And eventually I yelled, I yelled at her because my girlfriend at the time was in the back seat, and I said, uh-huh. you know, at least let her out of the car. Mom, stop the car. Stop the car. And I yelled, and she did. We were going 100 miles an hour, and it was nighttime, and we were on this really curvy road, lots of trees bordering the road, uh, huge boulders, and she slammed on the brakes, and we all lurched forward. I hit my head on the dashboard. Um, she always had a bunch of, like, um, glass bottles and stuff and in, in the wheel well area and that all crashed into a million little sharp pieces and then she looked at me after we almost crashed into a giant boulder you know swerving all over the road and she slapped me across the face and she said you can't speak to me that way i am your mother and i got out of the car i got my girlfriend out of the car i didn't speak to her again for a couple of years but it was that kind of behavior that drove me out as a kid it drove my my older brother out as well and that's that's why i lived basically on my own i mean i lived rent free i have to admit i'm in a college dorm so i'm not paying rent but you know all right okay the yeah okay so the dorm or did your girlfriend pay the rent or did is that usually free that was free yeah yeah that Uh was free we're going back back to when i was 15 but it was that kind of behavior that i couldn't be around so i i had to leave wow Yeah, take well, care of myself. Um, yeah, so that episode took uh, right away a bad turn, I have to say. Um, <laughs> it's and we're good. gonna go. It's gonna go. Uh, maybe let let's see. Let's see how how this ends uh, later later on. Given given there's a few few more ups and downs. If you have seen, oh, they're good. That the Netflix episode today. of uh, McAfee and Alex. So um, yeah. Well, you you mentioned you were writing college papers, so you are out uh, of your home now with your girlfriend in a dorm what got you into writing sort of did you find a passion for literature yeah um sure so i how do you how do you end up being a writer so early on in your life 
it was sort of a form of escapism, I think. My grandparents gave me, my grandmother gave me my first books that I ever read. One was about a ghost town, actually, which is interesting. And another was Holes, a really popular book, at least here in the States. It's called Holes. It was made into a movie starring Shia LaBeouf. So you're living now, you moved out of, out of your home, you, you started living with your girlfriend. And you mentioned you started actually ghostwriting papers for other students. Like what got you into writing or did you, yeah, what's, what, what got your passion into, into that, that skill? Writing was a form of escapism for me. And I think based on the last parcel of our conversation, you can tell like I didn't have the greatest childhood. My parents weren't the greatest. And, you know, I just, I, I think I turned to writing as a way of creating alternate realities for myself. You know, if I could create some heroic situation in fiction on the written page, it made me feel heroic. It made me feel strong. It made me feel confident. Um, made me feel like I was free, even in situations in which I wasn't. So I was around eight years old. And I, I watched, it's so weird, this is the catalyst. And it's kind of fitting given the genre that I'm writing in under my own name now. True crime, serial killer stuff. But I watched a movie called From Hell with my father. And I don't know what business I had watching a horror movie like that at eight years old. But From Hell is about Jack the Ripper. It's a movie starring Johnny Depp. And it's mm -hmm. it's about that infamous serial killer in Whitechapel, London, um, who preyed on women in the late 19th century. And that movie, it, it, it evoked something in me, this visceral emotion that made me think about who the killer could have been. You know, I've always been sort of a truth seeker and I've always asked that integral, you know, question why. And seeing that movie, I said, why, who, how, you know, this, so many questions just brimming, you know, for me. And so I had to get them out of my head. So I took my dad's yellow legal pad and I sat down as like this long, you know, took his legal pad and I just started writing a story mm -hmm. about who Jack the Ripper really was. And, uh, you know, like five hours later, 33 page single space, you know, 33 single space pages later, I had the makings of a book, you know, and, and that was this really catalyzing event that was this launch pad for my creativity because I discovered, oh, you know what, if I have a thought or some creative element in my brain, I can transmute it to these pages. It's just like that. It's so easy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I started doing that a lot. Um, I wrote, I wrote all through my childhood, my teens and young adulthood. You know, I won awards uh, uh, anonymously through my, you know, my school, my school's uh, poetry journal like we won some national awards but yeah I, i never put my name on the poems i just would be anonymous uh, again being a ghost i guess but because you weren't it, a you student or, or why didn't you put your name on it i didn't want people to know that i was writing i don't know okay. it was my private thing you know? okay did you thing. did you end up uh, at that college where your girlfriend was at as no. a student later on no i hated school i hate the structure of modern education which I mean, a large part has been uh, founded by these elite families like the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Fords. They created standardized testing. They created this very specific box. And I don't fit in that box. And I learned mm -hmm. that very early on. I got mm -hmm. 
I did very well at school I mean, when I was there. I got more, I missed more days than any other kid in my school's history at that time because I, I could do the homework and not be there. I didn't need to be there and I could do the work and excel. But because I missed so many days, my school had this policy which they they would penalize you. So they would mm -hmm. take points off your grades past a certain amount that you miss, like 60 days, like two months of school or something. But mm -hmm. I was way beyond that. So straight A student, I became not a straight A student by any means because they would strip me of my of my grades mm -hmm. for not being there. Um, so I, I graduated barely high school with a very minimal GPA. Um, I think it was like 2.1. <laughs> something like that uh, the good schools didn't want me and I didn't want any of the schools I didn't want to go to college I wanted to teach myself my own passions so that's mm -hmm. what I did so and when when sort of that I guess you didn't stay in the dorm uh, all your life so Broke once up. once up <laughs> exactly once that relationship <laughs> ended since you were a grad and were a student there, um, where did you go? What did you do? I, I started running a spot with a bunch of college kids right on campus, this big, beautiful home. Um, and then I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And around 19 years old, I, I was very passionate about environmentalism. Still am. Mm -hmm. you know. Again, it comes back to that, that core principle of balance in nature and in life. And so mm -hmm. I teamed up with a a local friend and I built a solar powered tricycle. I wanted to drive that trike across America to film a documentary about social and environmental change. Cool. That was my that was my life's goal, you know? Mm -hmm. It was weird. Yeah. And the trike was awesome. I drove it 40 miles, <clears throat> excuse me, on a single charge uh -huh. cloudy day and got to my my destination and the the trike was still fully charged it had charged on my journey you know mm -hmm. this thing was revolutionary i had a a trailer that had a solar panel on it as well that was going to store all my all my camping equipment my food my camera equipment you know excuse me it was uh this is in 2011 and 12 mm -hmm. no sorry 2012 so you know 11 years before tesla's became really it, you know, ubiquitous, you know, the Teslas were coming out, but they're very expensive and they're, they're not a whole lot of models. And here, you know, you had this random teenager who built a solar powered tricycle that could drive probably a hundred miles on a single charge and it could charge while it was driving um, from the sun. And it, yeah, it, it started turning a lot of heads at that time. Nice. So, so you, you did, the, you basically filmed the documentary along the way to to record the process of, of getting across or what was the or was it was it was it more general in general about environmentalism yeah i had picked out several authors um mm -hmm. really notable voices in the environmental movement to interview for the film and mm -hmm. they agreed to do it and so i was driving to you know i was going to drive to like dc you know to florida to atlanta georgia um I was going to drive to these authors and to these thought leaders and have them on the film while also filming my adventure along the way. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. Oh, I crashed what? the trike. Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. How far into the trip was that? No, I hadn't even started. I was going to start in about a month and 
I was going up College Hill is what we call it to the university uh-huh. where I still worked. And it's a very precipitous hill. It's huge. And I had, I had to sort of skimp on uh, some of the parts on the trike. It was great construction, but I bought these hub motors, these electric hub motors, which go in the wheels and make, those are my motors basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I bought cheap versions of it because they were expensive and I couldn't afford more. And they were, they just gutted out, you know, so on the hill, two of the hub motors, they, they burnt themselves out. So I lost all control and I applied the brakes because I was going backwards down this huge hill, the base of which had this giant rushing river, you know, where I was going to fly right into. And my brakes, my, my hydraulic brake system failed. So I was just going down the hill at like 30 miles an hour backwards on the solar trike in the middle of winter and um, ended up crashing it, broke a few parts. Uh, I was bleeding. I was hurt. I was injured. I fell off the trike. Sorry. And um, anyway, it would have cost probably $2,000 to repair it and put the good electronic brake system in there mm. and the new hydraulic, the new hub motors. So I didn't have that money. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to hitchhike instead, go across country and still make the film and still have the adventure, but I can't wait any longer. I got to go. Yeah. Did you, did you end up finishing the documentary that way? I did actually. I made the film. (laughs) (laughs) I made the film. It's private now, but I, yeah, I hitchhiked. I eventually landed on the streets of Los Angeles and I had no money. I was homeless. So I saw there were 51,340 homeless people in LA County. It was like, 10 times the size of my hometown was the homeless population. It was awful. They were everywhere. And I decided I wanted to start integrating that aspect into the film. So mm-hmm. that became my experience from, from then on, you know, filming the homeless experience. And I did make the film. It was about a year after that experience. Um, I submitted it to an international film contest and it did get, you know, it was the most viewed highest rated film. It didn't win because the winner was one of the contest hosts friends actually which was kind of like political um but yeah it's out there i just haven't shared it with anyone in a number of years how was i mean being being homeless in los angeles was that then a choice for the film or or how did you how did you go about yeah that it was uh sort of a choice in that i chose to spend my last 60 nine dollars on a bus ticket from el paso to los angeles and showed up with a quarter in my pocket and i didn't have any family or friends to bail me out so i said you know what okay i'll stick around i could have hitched north as i had originally intended to do i could have kept going north through california but i saw there was such a a vast problem there i wanted to sort of figure out why again it comes back to that why question why are there so many homeless people? Why why are there so many people who go without when we have so many people with plenty? You know, it, it didn't make sense to me. And I, I realized that not only, not only did I have to really face it head on as a homeless person to truly understand it, but <clears throat> I don't know where I was going with that, just that I really wanted to know. Yeah. And how, how did it, I mean, did you sleep on, sleep on the park benches? Like, 
um, I mean, Los Angeles is a little bit more forgiving, I think, in winter. But did like how long? How long were you homeless over there? I was homeless for four months there, and it's cold at night. That's what I realized. I always wondered about the cardboard. Why do people have cardboard? You know, why do homeless people use cardboard? Aside from constructing little huts and stuff, I thought I just don't understand. And then I, it dawned on me when I started using it. It's because it's a sleeping pad. So even in the winter, the streets are very cold mm. at night. The streets get very cold, and that gets up, that gets into your spine, that gets into your back. That's how you get hypothermia. That's how you die. You know, as a homeless person without medical attention. So I use cardboard. Um, I had a few locations that were sort of quiet and away from all the craziness that I like to sleep. One of them was beside a golf course. It was under construction, the sidewalk. So they actually had fencing protecting it with a tarp over one section of it. So if it was raining, I was under that tarp and I was dry, you know? Mm. Um, but I got, I got kicked out of that place eventually. And I, I started sleeping on Venice beach, you know? I mean, it so sounds nice as sleep on the beach, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure when it's permanent, it's not, not, not a lot of fun. Like, Yeah. How did you get out of there or what, 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 what got you to, I mean, it was kind of a choice, but still you didn't have any money. Like what, what made you move again away from, from that, that location, that, that life? I befriended a man uh, named Josh and, uh, he, he basically saved me. He, I kind of lost my mind. I lost my mind out on the streets. I was I was not sleeping. There was an ordinance, a city ordinance. You had to be awake by 5.30 a.m. every morning. And if you weren't awake, the LAPD would cart you away and throw you in jail. They would beat you up. I met a lot of homeless people who had severe injuries from police brutality. And oh, wow. so I already had insomnia. I still do. I think you know that quite well because it screwed up several of our meetings. But I have insomnia. So I didn't get a lot of sleep. You know, I, I was very sleep deprived for for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, I, I just wasn't sleeping, you know, and, and eventually um, I just lost my mind. You know, I, I became a totally different person overnight. It was the strangest thing that's ever happened to me. And it changed everything about my life that made me who I am today. So I'm grateful. But um, I that happened when I was standing on what they call the wisdom tree. It's kind of ironic. There's this lone tree up in the Hollywood Hills where um oh, what's that guy's name the aviator you know that movie um howard hughes yeah howard hughes so that guy he had purchased a ton of land up in the hollywood hills for his hollywood sweetheart um they ended up not getting together but the land stayed eventually went to a land trust and and now it's protected but there's this beautiful tree up there that people have been going to for you know 60 years hiking up to is called the wisdom tree or the ginger rogers tree which is mm -hmm. the name of the actress the hollywood starlet and you got this beautiful view of all of los angeles spread out before you and while i was up there with my friend josh and another friend that we had met at a cafe they were all hanging out they were smoking and i remember just being up in that tree and looking out at the urban sprawl and here i was you know i had built the trike that failed I hitchhiked across country and make a movie that seemed to have failed. I wanted to capture the story of the homeless that also seemed to have fallen, fall flat, uh, fell flat. And I had all these big aspirations and I had wanted to make some form of change in the world, make, make an impact, you know, make it a better place. 
that's what I wanted so badly. And I saw like the reality living on the streets, getting jumped, getting my nose broken by drug addicts and thieves, getting my life threatened. I almost lost my life because some psychopath wanted to take it from me, you know, and seeing Uh the brutality of human nature, the complete opposite of what I was raised to, to believe was true of the world. And I'm looking at the, the city and I see all the buildings, the asphalt, the airplanes, the smog, the chaos of it. And I thought this whole planet, this whole world was built to fail. There is no balance ecologically with nature. There's zero balance because everything they're doing, they're killing, they're killing to create. You know, they are destroying the natural world to create an unnatural environment. So I saw this dichotomous nature of humanity and I had been weeks without sleep. I had my nose broken. I, uh, my life had been threatened several days before in a big way. And I, I just snapped, you know, something changed. Yeah. Yeah. And I woke up the next day and everything looked like it was a fisheye lens. I wasn't seeing like I normally do. It felt like I was, I was holding a video camera up, you know, when you're videotaping Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. see the world through a second pair of eyes, that's how it felt, everything. And I was terrified of the world. It was like incessant PTSD, fight or flight mentality and anything that was man-made scared me, you know, airplanes, cars, uh, buildings, you know, anything that was made of clothing, like radios, it freaked me out because I, when I saw all that stuff, I saw death. I saw that same realization I had in, on the wisdom tree. And um, Josh, my friend, he recognized that something was very wrong. And so he, he said that he would take me all the way across country back to Maine mm-hmm. to, to get better if I agreed to do the trek is what it was called trek to change the world with that solar trike. And he filmed it and we made, we made the movie together. And I said, yes, I'll do that. So he, he took me back to Maine, you know? So I was like 20, 20 years old and I got back to Maine and I became a recluse for a while. Oh, wow. Did you heavy? Sorry. Yeah. Heavy stuff. No worries. But, um, so you, you, you sounded, sounded like you were were in a very dark place how did you get out of that was that yeah happening later on after when you said you were your clothes what do you mean it's like what I, I was do? i was in my house my mother's house I, I went back to her place that was ill-advised <laughs> that's when the the incident occurred you know um mm-hmm. with the driving thing and so i left that place and i was so for about two and a half years i was in this perpetual fight or flight state and I was trying to escape it. And the only way I really knew how, and that was by constantly traveling. I would go, mm-hmm. I'd crisscross the United States. I would hitchhike, I would take trains. I'd go down to South America. You know, I, I'd go to Europe. I, I just kept doing these trips, you know, working odd jobs to support it and really running away from my own shadow is what it was. And you can't run away from yourself. You know, that's the one thing you're stuck with. So mm-hmm. I was on a journey along the inside passage to Alaska. I was on a boat with these kind of sociopathic uh, multimillionaire people who were awful. <laughs> but uh, How do you end up with all these type of personalities, Alex? I don't know, man. I think I attract crazy, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they had been doing this passage. It's a four-month mm-hmm. journey to Juneau, Alaska. Um, four months there and back. 
they'd been doing it for 33 years and not one single person had ever stayed the whole four months. And I realized pretty quickly why. It's because of them. I was the only person who ever managed to do it. Uh, um, what did you do I got a bonus. for them? Or what do you... I was a, I was a chef. I was a deckhand. Oh, I did okay. I, all the yeah. cleaning. I was you know, gotcha. a waiter. I did everything. You know, and, you, and you did full, full four hours. Uh, full four months, sorry. Full four months, I did it. Yeah, I managed. I figured it out. And every single day I was, you know, meditating. I was saying, you know, this is a make or break kind of trip. I got to get my mind back. I got to be strong again. And, and uh, someone, a harbor master, gave me a copy of The Power of Positive Thinking mm -hmm. by Norman Vincent Peale. And it's just a little red book. And I read that book probably 50 times. I, I would read it every night. And that kind of changed my way of thinking it sort of I think meditating and focusing on the positive and the good and the love in my life it eventually changed my brain chemistry circuitry or whatever to not feel crazy and so it was the most incredible thing I got back to I got back to Seattle who pulled up to port and I stepped out and there's this you know city in front of me and all mm -hmm. these airplanes and these cars were in a We're in a boat yard, so there's a lot of machinery, a lot of, you know, a lot of um, tools, power tools going on. And usually that would terrify me and I would be like shrinking inside of myself. And, and I remember the most incredible thing was looking around at all these things and there's not a single shred of fear in me. I felt good. I felt confident. And that day I decided I wanted to become a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to actually do something that I've always loved and been passionate about. I said, I have $12,500 in my pocket. That's how much I made from the trip. Oh, wow. Like more money than I'd ever had in my life at that point. Mm -hmm. I was like 21 and a half. I said, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write and try to make a living off it until the mm -hmm. money runs out. That was it. And it was really remarkable. And I guess when you, when you're, when, when you ghostwriting and you're not just doing it for booze or weed, as you said before, <laughs> Um, yeah. that's actually quite a good way of making money as a writer, right? Because you don't necessarily have to sort of invest your time and everything into a book, but rather get paid, uh, while you, while you're working, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what I call the best kept secret of the literary industry. And, you know, 80% of nonfiction books are written by people like me and mm. it's lucrative. If you're good at it, it's very lucrative. You know, it's, um, I travel the world. I meet fascinating people. I tell incredible stories and I can work anywhere. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've had many meetings in which this, you know, my client or potential client will say, what's that sound? I hear a bell tolling or something. Where are you? And I say, Oh, I'm, I'm in Venice, Italy, you know, or, or I'm in Spain right now or the South of France, whatever. It's because like we talked about earlier on my vacations, they're not vacations. I'm still working. Um, mm -hmm. you can do it anywhere. It's a very empowering, very fascinating um, career. So you got your sanity back. Um, you're making yeah. money now, and then you yeah. decide to go on a on a let's say interesting trip with John McAfee. I mean, for those in the audience that do not know John McAfee, is the person who founded um, the antivirus software, and he got quite famous as a unconventional sort of a little bit more controversial person a little eccentric a little more risk-taking and 
you've captured the public's attention. I don't remember. It's like 10 years ago, eight years ago when he was on the run from yeah. all the governments he was claiming <laughs> and it was all over the media. So, uh, you decided to tag along. Like what, what yeah. again, like that was, that was your, you know, before maybe you've not, didn't <laughs> choose insane people, but I think here that's on you, man. Yes. Yeah, you knew me. what yourself, right. what you get, we're getting yourself <laughs> into now. I totally How did you end did. up with him. Um, so we'll fast forward a little bit. I, I became a ghostwriter before that money ran out and mm -hmm. it was totally serendipitous. It was an accident. I stumbled into the career and I realized I could, I could keep doing it and I could make it better, you know, and better and better every year. I'm, I'm a builder. Sorry, I keep smacking this thing. I'm a builder. I like to, to take one little simple thing and build it up and build it up and build it up. And that's what I did with my ghostwriting career because I realized it's such a nascent industry. I had the opportunity to. So I did that and I have ever since. Um, but fast forward a couple of years, I got real lucky. I'd written a number of best-selling books um, for a very famous client. I've written eight number one Amazon bestsellers, not New York Times. Uh -huh. I hope, I'm, I'm hoping I get one of those next year with one of my books. But um, they were they were huge. You know, they they out they outperformed one of the most famous authors in history by by a long shot for four months. So they're at the number one slots, and they kept outperforming, kept outperforming. And it was this sort of douchey tagline I could use now. Mm -hmm. What are you gonna say? I oh, sorry to interrupt. I mean, it sounds I've no idea about the book market, so let's forgive me the naive question. But number yeah. one selling book on the New York Times bestseller list or being number one on Amazon sounds like you're making more money if you're number one on Amazon versus New York Times. Or is that <laughs> you're, is that just right. for is the New York no, Times right. both sort of a combination, or is it more for you striking your ego a little bit if you're number one in that, on on the New York Times list? For for writers, their thing is they want to be on the New York Times because gotcha. it's traditional, you know uh -huh. what I mean. But yeah. technically, if you're traditionally published, you're making uh, 15% royalties. So if you're a New York Times bestselling author, it's not self-published. It's not Amazon. It's you're making 15%, maybe selling a lot of books, but at 15, if you're self-published, you get up to 70% royalties on Amazon. Mm -hmm. But this this guy was traditionally published. It was just, yeah. you know, published on Amazon um, through his publisher. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah but, no, I get it. I get yeah, it. that's and, a really and good sure, point. Sure, every, every bestseller in the New York Times uh, list will also make a lot of a uh, lot of sales. So, yeah. You know, either yeah. or. But mm -hmm. it was cool. You know, it, it my I was 24 years old. Um, and had all this like successful, all these successful projects, um, you know, I could share, I could talk about. So I started making a name for myself and, and then I got into the crypto industry and I started writing books for founders of cryptocurrencies and started learning a lot more about blockchain technology, artificial intelligence and, and web 3.0, um, internet of things. It was fascinating to me, this this new concept that could overturn our traditional paradigm and totally change it. So I was sort of like the, the ghost rider of the crypto world for a little while. So people started to know me. They started to seek me out. And John was the one of the most proficient, controversial voices in the cryptocurrency world. And it was very ironic because in 2012, when he was on the run for the murder of his neighbor in Belize in, in Central America, I was homeless and I, I was seeing him on the news and stuff like, Oh, John McAfee, you know, internet pioneer software 
Mogul is on the run for a suspected murder of his neighbor, Gregory Fall. And I thought the way that the media was capturing him, that he was a black sheep. I'd always been a black sheep myself. I thought that he was perhaps misrepresented as I had been misrepresented, as I had felt like a weirdo, excuse me, as an outcast, as a, as a mm-hmm. nobody, you know? And so I said to myself, if I get out of this, if I get my mind back, I want to write his book someday. It was the weirdest thing. I just, just declared it to myself. Then you fast forward to when I was 24, or 25 now, I had a mutual acquaintance who worked for John, worked with John, and I reached out to him and I said, hey man, like, I would love to write his life story. I'd love to do that. And he said, nah, man, like he's, he hates writers. He hates, you know, people who write books basically because he says they're fakers. And, you know, that's what John told him. He said, um, he said, I will never have anyone write my story because they can't step in my shoes and live it. And so I countered back. Yes, I can. And I would want to, I'm not going to write it from my, from my office upstairs here and pretend to know what I don't and not experience what I'm writing about. The, the way that I, I write, I like to have boots on the ground. I like to be experiencing it firsthand, you know? And it's, uh, it's a very risk-taking mentality, but it's shaped my career path through and through. So eventually he saw parts of that documentary I told you about mm-hmm. um, where the, I the was one phone in LA. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. He saw that and it, it struck a chord and he invited me back. He invited me down there to work. Actually, he didn't invite me. He said, he called me randomly. He said, hey, I'll see you in two days. I was like, "What? okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I'll be there. I had no idea how I was going to get there. I had no idea where I was going, but that's how it started. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of years earlier, you kind of wanted to. Uh, right for him because you kind of something there was something there that you felt was similar to to your story if what after you met him like did you see a lot of parallels in 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 that still or at what point did you realize like wait a second this is not what i was actually projecting years earlier yeah you're totally right um i did see a lot of similarities between us you know he had an abusive father and a shitty childhood I had that. Um, I had, you know, actually threatened my father. I was like, you ever hit me again? I'll kill you. I didn't mean it, but I said it, you know, that's what kids say when they're like taking charge and they want to feel like a man or whatever. Uh, but John actually killed his father for the same reason. I later found out while I was working with him. Um, other similarities was the way that we thought, like our thought processes were very similar. We were very very um what's the word we both have had because he passed very investigative thought processes like we we walk into a room we're thinking about everything we're analyzing everything down to the most minute detail and that was the way he worked that was the way he thought that's how i think with writing that's how he thought with technology so we were similar in, in many ways and he eventually started calling me son he looked at me like a son I looked at him like a dad until I found out some of the things that made me turn him away. Um, yeah, to answer the second part of your question, I realized there was a, the level of criminal behavior was far worse than I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've worked with criminals before. I work with controversial people. 
-hmm. I won't work with someone who has murdered an innocent person. I won't work with someone who has raped somebody. I won't work with someone who like is a serial killer. I would never, I wouldn't even interview them. I don't, I won't talk to garbage like that. I'll write about them. I'll expose them, but I won't work with evil people ever. Um, and when I found out that there was a side of John that was purely evil, I had to walk away. Let's touch a little bit on the book. As, as, sure. So you're with McAfee. You're actually on the run. Like he was, he was, yeah. he was trying to not be caught. Or if you watch a Netflix series, you, you're never sure whether this is all fabricated or actually happening. I'm pretty sure that there were a lot of people out there that weren't really friends with him. Um, but some of it sounded also a little bit fabricated as you see him act in front of the camera, which is, uh, I, I believe not reenacted, but actually happening in that moment when he was captured. Um, you wrote a book sort of as part of being, as being a ghostwriter for, for McAfee and, um, you describe it as sort of a descent into madness. What, what's, yeah. what was happening to you during that time? You know, I had guns pointed at my head. Um, I was told that we were on the run from the Sinaloa cartel because John had hacked them, mm -hmm. which he had when he was in Belize. Everyone thinks, oh my God, you know, like, you know, Gregory Fall. And, and yeah, that was awful. And he had a part in that. But there was a deeper story there. And the deeper story was that he was getting shake, shaken down by the narcos. And so he fought back in the only way that he knew how, which was bugging their computers and and uh, malware and spying on them and learning their secrets and exposing the fact that he knew their secrets and could use it against them. So all of a sudden he had a target on his back because when he fought back, he fought dirty and now they wanted him gone. So he had this relationship with the cartel for a number of years. It was sort of like in the right circumstances, if they could catch him in a certain way and they could kill him and put him away, um, without his dead man switches being activated, they would do that. So he was always allegedly under threat from the cartel, not just the cartel, people in positions of extreme political power who he had also hacked um, in a similar way, but by creating a backdoor in Mac the antivirus software, which was the most ubiquitous used software for antivirus in the world, you know, he gave He donated $60 million dollars worth of his software to the United States Armed Forces. He didn't just like, to the military, sorry. So he didn't just donate it. He was donating malware so that he could get secrets from them. And that's what this guy did. And that made him extremely paranoid. And that had a multi-layer effect. The paranoia drove him to drink again. The paranoia drove him to consume copious amounts of drugs again which in turn fueled his paranoia. So there's this famous X-Files quote. I love this quote and I love that show. It's a brilliant show. And the quote is, the truth is best hidden between two lies. You got a lie on the left and a lie on the right. And then the truth is over here hiding in plain sight. But the two lies obfuscate the truth and the path towards it. And that's what John did. He was brilliant. Manipulator. That, that's in the in the yeah. TV show as well. You can never tell what is right or wrong or fabricated no. or not. Like how how did you? I mean, that would drive me insane. How did you get a feel for what is actual true and what is just made up? 
my job is to find that truth, right? To tell the story because I can't just take it from the horse's mouth. If he tells me he, he rescued some child in a third world country, you know, I, I need proof. I need to understand more to know whether that's true. I need to interview the people who could, who could account for that. And with John, I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't, I was told explicitly when I arrived, do not talk to anyone. Do not say why you're here. Don't, don't let anyone know your name. Don't let anyone, excuse me, know your job. Um, don't ever talk to anyone but John and Jimmy. And it quite immediately, I said, no, screw that. Like, I'm going to talk to everybody, you know, because this isn't how I work. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it the way they do it because it's, it's not, that's not me. So I became well-liked over, it was like seven months I was working with these guys. I became well-liked and I very much so befriended many of the people on the team. And that's when the story started coming out. I would get one story from John. Yeah, you know, we had, uh, uh, there were ninjas on the roof and shit. And, you know, I had to shoot, shoot at one of them. You know, they, they were coming up with grappling hooks and stuff. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Then I got the real story from the people who were there and witnessed it. There were no ninjas on the roof. He was blitzed out of his mind on drugs and he fired. He was naked. He was completely naked and he had a gun in each hand and he fired through a window that he thought a ninja was climbing up onto. He almost shot his security guard. It whizzed, the bullet whizzed right by the guy. Um, there was nobody around. There was no one there. You know, so, so my job started becoming more complicated because I stopped taking things from the horse's mouth. I investigated myself and talked with people who were there, you know, and yeah, that's how I started uncovering the truth hidden between the lies. Oh man, did you, did, I mean, how, how safe did you feel after hearing such a, such a story that he would walk around on drugs and shoot? Uh, I, I kind of live in the moment. I'm that kind of person. And, you know, since I got my mind back, I was 20, I was like 22 years old when I got it back. And from then on, it's been a joy ride from then on, from 22 to now I'm 31. Every single day, every single moment has been a blessing because I could have, I could have never gotten it back. I didn't know if I was going to make it to 30, you know, and being in that state. So that fundamentally changed my perception on certain things such as like danger and adventure um i feel like a i don't know a therapist would have a field day with me i'm not sure i i'm That's very what I, happy. i've been I'm constantly very, thinking today yeah oh absolutely <laughs> this conversation, yeah yeah all your viewers are gonna think i'm nuts or something but it's just like i'm i feel very normal and i also think that being in certain stressful situations um they don't stress me out so much because I have already been in this, the most stressful situations in my life. So it doesn't really phase me as much. There are a couple of times when we got like kidnapped in Barcelona. I think as, as part of your, as part of your, um, travel with McAfee as a ghostwriter, you ended up not writing his memoirs, but you wrote a book about sort of the time Uh, with him, what do you have it? You have it handy, right? Sort of. Uh, yeah. sh can you show it in the camera? There you go. With the the catchy short title of the man. 
who hacked. Oh yes, the it's, world. sorry. It's a little pixelated yeah. for me at your camera. The man who hacked yeah. the world. Uh, Ghost Riders descend into madness. Oh man, uh, and um, yes. it's partially uh, your story and partially sort of the trip with McAfee, if I if I recall that right. You're absolutely right. It's it's what I call a true crime memoir. A lot of people, I think, see the cover and they think, oh, it's it's a book explicitly about John. You know, mm -hmm. it's not. It's 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 about it's a true crime memoir. It's about my life and my experiences with people like John and losing my mind and then getting it back and then just about losing it again because John becomes my client and I go on the run with him and travel the world with him and tell his story in a way that no one else has ever been able to because they've never been there with him experiencing the story as it unfolded hmm. so yeah that's basically what it is it's a it's a it's a parallel sort of story um mine and his and uh, i don't know how to explain it i just don't know how to explain it it's, no it's a weird book I just really recommend cool. everybody to to have a look. I think if you if you liked uh, to follow John McAfee's story, and if we if you, if you like to see life on a roller coaster, um, have a have a look, uh, have a closer look, and buy the book. That'd be my recommendation. Um, Alex, you mentioned before you lost, got your sanity, lost it again, and obviously got it back although jokingly you're saying like people hearing yeah. your stories must think you're you're insane um how how are you today it's like how did you turn this around and what's your what's your setup um as as of as of today in your cabin i'm great uh life is wonderful i i think i was telling you this earlier you know the topic of the conversation the real crux of this is about moderation and balance right and so much of my life experience as you can probably tell has not had that it, it wasn't balanced you know i was either i was living in a millionaire's house next to bob dylan in malibu right next to bob dylan's house or i was living on the streets of los angeles you know i was poor and broken and alone or i was you know wealthier happy content in living my dream job my dream life which is how it's been for 10 or 11 years now, you know, and I still, even though I had that crazy experience with John, I almost lost my life. Uh, he lost his eventually. It's still, it was an adventure. It was, it was a really remarkable adventure that changed my life. And I've been utilizing the lessons from that adventure every day, you know, and when you, when you're around such darkness and, and evil, when you're around people who who thrive on chaos, you learn how to separate yourself from that chaos and how to have some semblance of peace in your own life. And that's what it's all about. And that's how that's what I've managed to do after all these years and all those crazy experiences is I learned how not to be. I learned how I wanted to be. I learned who I wanted to be. And I, I am that person now. And I'm that person every day. How does that, how does um, that uh, uh, materialize in your day? Say again? How does that materialize in your day when you say, um, you, what, what do you not do and what do you do that makes that life different? I would like to say that I don't take on controversy anymore, but I still do. And I promised Sam that I wouldn't. And then I had these 
huge stories fall into my lap. One of them is about a serial killer. It's a crazy story and I'm writing it now. And I have the guys who did the, the, the McAfee documentary, they want to option it, turn it into a movie. And I have an agent for it. It's like probably the best story of my career. And I just, you asked earlier, how do, how do these people always come to you? You know, I, I guess I attract them. I attract these crazy stories and crazy lives. So maybe there's not balance in, in the sense that I got rid of that entirely, but there there's balance in so many other ways. So one of the, one of the core things that separated me from John was John wanted yes men and women at all times. Mm -hmm. You had to say yes. If he said fly across the world to Thailand tomorrow to meet me, you had to do it. And if you didn't, you were dead to him. He was an absolutist. There was no gray area. It was black or white. And that was it. Mm -hmm. It was yes or no. There was no middle ground. That was very much who he was. There was no balance. There was no temperance. It was just purely chaos. And one of the things that drew me away from him was, you know, my girlfriend's grandfather had just passed away. She was really broken up because she was so close with him. And John wanted me on the phone. I said, I'm sorry, I'm taking her out to dinner because she's very sad over the loss of a family member. So I can't be on the phone with you right now. And he called me screaming and said, you get on the phone right now. And I said, nope, nope. She's more important to me than you. He couldn't understand that. How could she be more important than him? Hmm. That's family. That's love. That's that's everything, right? So nowadays, and I fired him, uh, but there are more reasons than that, like bigger reasons. But that was a real catalyst as well. So you got, saying, you no, got to understand sort of to separate. I mean, for for everybody else who's working corporate job, sort of in a, in, a, in sort of a different world than you, than you are in. Um, sort of this, you did a good separation between work and, and sort of your life, right? Sort of your relationships yeah. and your personal, personal surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to go back to that. Um, I'm a rambler, but nowadays, you know, work is all encompassing for me because it's, it's such an integral part of my life, mm -hmm. but I've managed ways to separate it from my other half, from Sam, you know, from, from the boys, from the dogs, from my home. You know, I, I've struck a balance, which I don't know where I was going with that, Rico. I suck. No worries. Don't worry about uh, it. No, I mean. Yeah. No, but uh, uh, the work-life balance that I never had. Yeah. Now I, ha now I have it. And now it's like absolute. You know, if, if Sam's home, it's 5 p.m., I'm with her. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter if I'm working on this crazy serial killer story or Or a client wants to call me at all hours of the night, which is all the time. That's why I have my phone on silent forever. You know, I just, now I know what's most important in my life and, and I stick to it. Yeah. I yeah. Guess. We're telling me once, like you lock your phone away, which also I think is something people should definitely do at least at, at night. Um, for, I mean, you're, you're living, you're living, um, a wonderful setup with sort of nature around you and with sort of, I catch you once in a while also when you're, when you're out with your dogs, um, for, I think for, for, for us, it's always good to kind of create these borders. I, I don't know what's the best way to describe it because technology is everywhere. And if you want to, you can do anything on your phone right now, right. Or on your iPad or on your laptop, like literally no matter where you're at, you could watch Netflix, you could do this and that. Also on the Apple Watch, right? You can make phone calls, you can text, 
No, but you, you're describing um, sort of a balanced life, and, and the, the way way uh, I, I know you, um, you go into nature, you basically lock your phone away. There's, um, I think, something about it that you know I should also be better at because you can do everything on your phone. You can work on your phone. If you're on vacation, don't bring your laptop. You can still work on your yeah. phone. You can still get emails, right? So you you need to intentionally do certain things. Like I have friends locking their phones away at night in like a box that you cannot open from eight to you know from eight to eight or something like that. I think that's yeah. that's a that's a very smart way, um, you know, to force yourself um, uh, to do it. But then you know, aside from that, it's not just about your phone. It's sort of creating a certain certain limits, a certain behavioral. Um, kind of borders where if I go on a walk, you don't bring your phone, but also not your headphones, because that way you're kind of forced to listen, look, and, you know, experience the forest that, that everything around you yeah. or pay attention to your, uh, to your loved one over dinner and things like that, where I think it, you really have to do it yourself, right? So, because if you don't do it, all the, everything breaks down and you're just being dominated by, um, other people. Uh, to drive you, the emails, the work emails that get you, the clients that yeah. say to call you. Um, is it, um, I mean, you, you're also writing fiction, right? So yeah. for yourself, so you're writing your own books. Um, how can you switch off that inner voice? Um, because <laughs> that one's hard to, uh, hard to lock in a box at night, right? Oh, you're so right. You're very perceptive, Rico. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to switch that voice off for me. That's probably what drives my insomnia is like, I have so many stories all the time that I'm writing and some of them are very, very important, you know, for many reasons. And so that voice, I call that the omniscient voice. That's always there. We always have it, but I've gotten to a point now. I have Sam, I have the love of my life. I have these dogs who are the other loves of my life. You know, it's the voice goes away when I look at them, that voice that goes away because everything I've ever wanted is right here in front of me. It's not in my head. It's not the stories. It's it's like right there. It's that simple. So pretty much that voice is like on all the time. But once she gets home or when I'm walking the dogs in the woods and stuff and hanging out and playing with them, that thing, that thing is turned off and it's, it's just second nature now. That's all. But do, do, I got to tell you, I saw something the other day. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll come tell back. Uh, I saw some, something the other day. Kind of broke my heart. I was I was at a restaurant with a client. And there was a woman there with her family, husband, two boys, a little girl. And every single one of them, the entire dinner, they were glued to the phone. Mm. The husband, the two boys, the girl but not the mother. And the mother looked sad. The mother, mother was just sitting there, not doing anything, just sort of, you know, like had her hands clasped and just looking around. And I thought, God, I never want that. <laughs> I yeah. will never do that. I mean, I catch myself also um, often sort of doing that in, in circumstances where, you know, the phone should just stay in your pocket or, you know, should be in your bag. It's definitely yeah. something. Uh, it's, yeah, that's a, that's definitely something um, we we can all work on. I mean, be it be it in a let's say in a subway in New York, or I, I get it because you don't really want to interact with anyone uh, in, right. in, if if there's so many pe unknown people around you. But only with 
people you know, your friends, etc. I think you can definitely benefit from being being present in the moment. And and it sounds like that's what we what you're actually doing when you're with your dogs, when you're with Sam. That's that that presence also kind of locks away that voice um, that keeps totally. keeps thinking about stories, about characters, and so forth. Do, do you give room to that voice? Let's say one 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 day a week, or in, during certain hours during the day. Uh, it's all you... it's all very regulated. Yeah. So I I have a ton of meetings. So my meetings are um my meetings are usually like Thursdays and Fridays mm -hmm. in the afternoons. My creative time is every day in the morning and early afternoons every day. You know, weekends too. That's my creative. That's when I'm writing. That's when I'm thinking about concepts and working through them and researching and reading, you know, and so I'm, I'm very regulated about that. So that's when the voice is on. When Sam comes home, the voice goes off. It sounds like I'm, I'm insane. The voices, the voices in my head go away when Sam, that's not <laughs> what I'm trying to say, but probably what your viewers think by now. And that's okay. Maybe something. But, again, it's like yeah. if, if somebody just joined right now, if this was a live sort of radio show, uh, again, therapist, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna get like a bunch of support lines, like uh, phone numbers or something. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's a uh, that creative drive, and you have to have separation. Otherwise, you'll lose yourself. You know, you're answering emails all hours of the night. I get 30 client requests every week, so that's 120 a month. Wow, it's 120 stories a month. 120 people from varying backgrounds with different degrees and life experiences who want a book written about the you know their lives. It's a lot. It's I mean, imagine like t 10 years ago or so, when you got, once you got into writing and ghostwriting, the first job must, must have felt amazing um, to do yeah. what you want to do. And now you're basically uh, in, a, in a luxurious position where you can pick the clients and you don't have to choose the nutcases, yeah. Alex. Yeah, I <laughs> Just agreed. hint, hint here. You don't have yeah. to choose the nutcases. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see the nutcases and sociopaths. I just run the other way. Uh -huh. I've, a very good way of like weeding them out these days. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very strategic about it. So my phone is on silent all hours of the day, except for with Sam or my older brother. Mm -hmm. um, my, my work schedule is very regimented so that I work a lot, but creative in the mornings, early afternoons, and then meetings late afternoons, Thursdays and Fridays. Um, no meetings on the weekends anymore. That's a Sam rule a good one. I put my phone away when Sam comes home and I get a lot of flack for that. You know, people like even friends like, Hey man, why didn't you write to me last night? And I said, well, I put my phone in the bedroom when Sam gets home. So I'm not tempted to look on email, uh, hop on social media or mm. anything like that. I look at a screen all day and I'm reading, I'm writing on my laptop. The last thing that I need is more screen time, Yeah, you know, when I'm done with work. So I have to have that separation. I work up in my office and all my work stuff is up there. My schedule book, uh, you know, I write everything down. So I don't use like Google, whatever. I don't even know what it's called. The guy who was, was getting up, the guy who was um, researching and writing about crypto doesn't have a calendar yeah. on his phone. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> and I love it. That's also, that's part of the separation, right? Is so many people, they have their tasks through their phone. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't like that because if, if I forget like, oh shoot, am I meeting Rico for a podcast tomorrow or not? I'm not going to 
break my rule at 6.30 p.m. when I'm with Sam and having quality time with my family and look at, go grab my phone and like look through my phone, I'm going to go and look at my schedule book and see, oh, yeah, right there. Okay, cool. Put it down. My eyes didn't touch a screen, and I, I prefer it that way. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Hey, um, we went way longer than we anticipated, <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun to record this, Alex. So thank you so much for being part yeah. of it. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Hope you did too. Uh, tune in again next Friday for the next episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast. Also give us a positive review wherever you're listening in. And I hope you come and listen again. Have a great week and see you soon.